When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast. This is a podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so, so much for joining us. On today's episode, we're going to provide the latest news around Napoli, and we're going to provide a bit of a lay of the land around the other top leagues in Europe. In part 2, we'll preview Napoli's match on Sunday against Genoa. And in part 3, we're going to do a mini feature on the liquidity ratio. And I'll tell you a bit about a really fun pool we're participating in called the Podcast Scudetto. So starting with Napoli, we continue to follow the situation around Arkadiusz Milik, which has been really poorly handled. Roma has had enough, so they're no longer pursuing him. That leaves Napoli with about 2 weeks to find a new buyer. Player agent Vincenzo Morabito confirmed on Radio Kiss Kiss that Napoli is negotiating with an English club. He said Milik is a Napoli player despite there being something in England. They had promised him 6 million euros a year. Now the Roma track has also burned down, but Napoli cannot ask for such high figures. If they still ask for 25 plus 5 in bonuses, then no one will buy him. His value for me is around 20 million euros. Milik is convinced he can earn 5 million, but in the Premier League, they won't give him more than 3.5 million per season. This situation was handled very badly. It reminds me of Pandev's at Lazio. Sky Sport are also reporting that Milik could be heading to the Premier League. The most likely destination at the moment appears to be Tottenham, especially if they sell Deli Alli. I've seen different reports on their price. One report said that De Laurentiis wants 30 million euros, which makes no sense given that Napoli had agreed to sell Milik to Roma for 28 million euros, including bonuses. I've seen another report saying that De Laurentiis wants 25 million euros, which sounds more realistic, assuming that that number does include bonuses. And I've seen yet another report that says this could be a one-year loan with obligation to buy. Milik only has one year left on his contract, so I think the way to get that done 
is to make the obligation to buy happen a day before the contract expires. Milik has also been linked to Everton where he would reunite with Carlo Ancelotti and Alan, but that deal would only happen if Everton sold Moise Kane, and Newcastle is apparently interested as well. Moving on, there have been a few other small stories in the transfer market. The newest name that has been linked to Napoli is Inter's Matias Vecino. Apparently, the clubs have begun negotiating. I'm not sure how I feel about him just yet. I personally don't think a 29-year-old central midfielder is the priority at the moment, and I worry about the potential transfer fee after what we paid Inter for Matteo Politano. Fortunately, the chances of Vecino joining Napoli are pretty slim as we don't currently have any non-European Union spots available. Elsewhere, Napoli had reportedly agreed to terms to sell Amin Yunus to Hellas Verona, but Yunus blocked the sale. According to Los Spor, Napoli are among three clubs interested in Barcelona centre-back Jean-Claire Todibo. Rennes and Everton are also interested. Presumably, Napoli are only interested if they can sell Caladou Koulibaly, which seems less and less likely. Player agent Mario Giuffredi told Radio Marte that Napoli would have bought Jordan Bertou had they sold Koulibaly, but Giuffredi also thinks that is unlikely to happen now. He said there is a 99.9% chance that Vertu stays at Roma. In the same interview, Giuffredi spoke about another client of his in El Cid Husay. Husay's contract expires at the end of this season, and Giuffredi said they are evaluating an offer they've received from Spartak Moscow. When asked if Napoli would agree, he said it would be a shame for the player to leave for free. Gennaro Tutino has officially joined Salernitana and said he'd be for one year on a loan with option to buy. And finally, two of our Primavera players that we saw at Castel di Sangro this summer, Lorenzo Sgarbi and Alessandro Zanoli, have joined Serie C side FC Leniago Salas on one-year loans. In other news, on Wednesday, our Primavera opened their 2020-21 campaign with a match against Ascoli in the first round of the Coppa Italia Primavera. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to find the full match anywhere, so I'm relying on the highlights here. Napoli dominated this match, scoring a poker in a 4-0 win. Antonio Cioffi opened the scoring in the 13th minute. Flavio Romano played a ball over the top from the left side around midfield. Cioffi ran onto the ball and fired a low hard shot from the top of the box that was pretty much straight at Ascoli keeper Nunzio Zizania, but it was hit so well that it still beat the keeper. Attilio Altomare doubled Napoli's lead in the 42nd minute on a gorgeous through ball from Giuseppe D'Agostino with the outside of his boot. Altomare tucked his shot in just inside the far post. D'Agostino was the man of the match for me, at least judging from the highlights. He created chance after chance from the right wing and also had a few chances of his own, but failed to find the back of the goal. Vincenzo Potenza made a 3-0 in the 75th minute. Potenza won possession and carried on the right wing. He played a give-and-go with Antonio Vergara in the box before bending his left-footed shot inside the far post. Potenzo was also involved in the fourth goal, which came in the fourth minute of added time. He played a looping cross into the box to an unmarked Bruno Umile, who tapped in to close the match. So that was the Primavera squad. On Sunday, our Napoli ladies will kick off their Coppa Italia. Napoli are in Group G with Sassuolo, who defeated us 3-1 in our last match. And the other team is Pontedera, who are dead last in Serie B, albeit only two matches into the campaign. That match on Sunday is against Pontedera. Hopefully, we'll get to see new signing Jacinta Galabadarashki, who joined last week from West Ham United. That will be the Feminile's first match since September 5th. They've been off for Euro qualifiers. The Nazionale Feminile, the women Italian nationals team, defeated Bosnia and Herzegovina 5-0 in their qualifier. 
Finally, back in July, we reported that De Laurentiis had filed a complaint against Roma for failing to comply with COVID protocols during Napoli's match against Roma at the San Paolo on July 5th. The complaint was that Roma's substitutes were not properly social distancing. Roma CEO Guido Fienga and team doctor Massimo Manara were both found guilty by the FIGC court. Fienga has been suspended for 30 days, which means he can't be at the matches. He also can't be involved in transfers. Now, that's not a huge deal, really. The CEO doesn't make any in-game decisions, and though Fienga is overseeing transfers, two intermediaries, Mario Giuffrida and Paolo Busardo, are doing all the negotiating. Moving on, I haven't provided any news out of Europe lately, so I thought it would be fun to provide a bit of a lay of the lands across the other four leagues in the top five in Europe. This is partially for selfish reasons as I'm trying to broaden my knowledge on different leagues. I'm not quite at the point of watching full matches, but that's also because I try to watch every Serie A match, which doesn't leave me a whole lot of time. So let's start with England. The Premier League kicked off on September 12th, so only two matches have been completed thus far. It's a little too early to say how this season will go. Obviously, Liverpool are expected to be up there, and they've started 2-0. Four other teams have started 2-0 as well, some of which are a little bit surprising. One of them is Arsenal, who appear to finally be heading in the right direction under Mikel Arteta. Everton are also 2-0. All of their big signings are playing well, led by James Rodriguez. The other two signings were Abdoulaye Ducouré and ex-Napoli player Alain. I'm happy to see Alain doing well. The fact that he is doing well does not mean that we shouldn't have sold him or that we didn't get enough. His time had come at Napoli and I think the change of scenery was exactly what he needed to revive his career. Crystal Palace are 2-0 coming off a big win over Manchester United and Leicester City has started really well at 2-0 as well. Four clubs have only played one match including Manchester United who are 1-0. A club that is not a perfect 2-0 is Chelsea after they broke the bank in the summer. They improved at almost every position, bringing in Thiago Silva, Malang Sar, Ben Chilwell, Kai Havertz, Hakim Zayek, and Timo Werner. The one position Chelsea didn't improve is the goalkeeper, which we saw at play on the second goal in Chelsea's 2-0 loss to Liverpool last weekend. But for me, the big story so far has been Leeds United. Marcelo Bielsa has this team playing a really fun, attractive brand of football. If you only watch Serie A, then Leeds are sort of the Atalanta of the Premier League in terms of style of play. I'm not comparing the histories of these clubs, just the styles of play. They score a lot, but they also concede a lot, and it's early stages, but they look like the kind of team that can beat anyone. They held their own against Liverpool in a back-and-forth affair that finished in a 4-3 loss, and they nearly blew a 4-1 lead to Fulham, but held on for the 4-3 win. In Spain, La Liga kicked off its campaign on September 12th as well. Most of the chatter has been around the transfer market. Of course, we had Messi requesting to leave, and just about every football fan in the world was finding a reason why Messi should join their club. We also had the Luis Suarez saga, where Barcelona basically told Suarez he was no longer welcome. It appeared that Suarez was going to join Juventus, then shortly after the story broke that Suarez cheated on his Italian exam, we learned that Juve were going to buy Alvaro Morata instead, and that Suarez would replace Morata at Atletico Madrid. Sid Lowe of The Guardian and the Spanish Football Podcast thinks that if Atleti can get a really good season out of Luis Suarez, and if he's focused, has a point to prove, angry, and physically fit, all at a time at which neither Real Madrid nor Barcelona are very convincing, then Atletico could be title contenders. At the other big Spanish club, both Gareth Bale and Sergio Reguilon have left to join Tottenham. As we mentioned earlier, James Rodriguez left to join Everton. Real Madrid have only played one match so far, which was a nil-nil draw against Real Sociedad. David Silva replaced Alexander Isak in the 63rd minute. Silva, of course, made a last-minute move to Sociedad after just about every transfer expert confirmed he was moving to Lazio. 
Granada and Real Betis topped the table at 2-0. Betis are led by Manuel Pellegrini. Last season, only relegation side Mallorca allowed more goals than Betis, but they've started this season with two clean sheets. Barcelona, Atletico Madrid, Sevilla, and Elche have yet to play a match. The German Bundesliga was the first of the big five to kick off their campaign despite being the first league to complete their 2019-20 campaign. Seven of the nine matches had fans in attendance with a maximum of 20% of stadium capacity allowed. Borussia Dortmund vs Borussia Mönchengladbach had 9,300 fans in attendance which was the most of any of the matches. The two matches that were played behind closed doors were FC Cologne vs Hoffenheim and the opening match which was Bayern Munich vs Schalke. The reason for that is because football matches are not permitted to have fans if the infection rate is more than 35 people per 100,000 over a 7 day period. The infection rates in Cologne and Munich exceeded that hurdle rate and therefore those matches were played behind closed doors. That didn't hurt Bayern Munich, if you haven't heard they're pretty good. The treble winners defeated Schalke 8-0 to kick off their campaign. And if that wasn't enough, on Thursday Bayern beat Sevilla 2-1 in the UEFA Super Cup, which for those who aren't aware is a match contested between the winner of the Champions League and the winner of the Europa League. Finally in France, after being the only top European league to cancel its 2019-20 season, Ligue 1 was the first to commence its 2020-21 season. They were also the first league to have fans return with up to 5,000 fans at every match. The first match was played on August 21st between Bordeaux and Nantes. Champions PSG have been off to a rough start. They were missing a number of key players in their first match due to COVID, but they seem to have gotten back on track. Saint-Étienne have been the biggest surprise, starting this season with three wins and a draw, including a 2-0 win over title hopefuls Marseille. They've been an exciting team to watch with all the young talent they have, which has been a bit of a theme in Ligue 1, and I'll get to that in a moment. Stade Rennes have continued to play well after finishing in third last season, albeit in an abbreviated season. After a drawn match day one, they've won three straight. What I'm enjoying most about following Ligue 1 is the wealth of young talent coming through the league. We see players like Eduardo Camavinga, Jonathan Bamba, Max Kakare, Amin Guri, Adil Ushish. I'm sure fans of Liga wish these rising stars stayed in the league, but for fans of the other top leagues, Liga has become a breeding ground for top talent. I mean, the league even rebranded itself as the League of Talents. Napoli have obviously been shopping in the league, particularly at Lille. This year we signed Victor Osiman and we're very close to signing Gabriel. We previously signed Kevin Malqui from Lille. And of course last season we tried to sign Nicolas Pepe from Lille. Fauzi Goulam came from Saint-Étienne. Adam Unes came from Bordeaux. And youth player Zinedine Machache came from Toulouse. So that will do it for the news. In part 2 we'll preview Napoli's second match of the season. let's preview Napoli's upcoming match against Genoa. I want to start with the transfer market because there have been some significant changes at Genoa that occurred right around the same time that we posted part 2 of our season preview which was on September 19th. At the time Genoa had only made two somewhat significant signings in Lennart Sisbora who joined on loan from Atalanta and Milan Badel 
who joined from Lazio. On the same day that we published that preview, Genoa also secured Davide Zabacosta on loan from Chelsea and Marco Piaccia on loan from Juventus. We've also since learned that Andrea Pinamonte will stay at Inter after spending last season on loan at Genoa, so that's a significant loss for the Grifone. We recapped Genoa's match against Crotone last episode. The main point I made there was that Crotone probably made Genoa look better than they really are. And credit to my good friend Jerry Mancini, I was on his podcast with Alex Dono, the Cultural Connection podcast, and Jerry correctly pointed out that despite the scoreline, Genoa's backline did not look very good. Crotone had a couple of quality chances in the first half, and they all came from crosses. In the 15th minute, Simi got behind the back line, but his shot from inside the 6-yard box happened to be straight at Perin. Emmanuel Riviere scored the lone goal in the 18th minute from a cross, and in the 42nd minute, Simi hit the upright on yet another cross. Genoa's attack looked really good, obviously they scored 4 goals, but I thought Crotone's defending really helped Genoa out. Crotone sat back and allowed Genoa to come to them, but they just held their shape and didn't really move a whole lot, which made it very easy for Genoa to pass around them. Again, not to take too much away from Genoa's finishing, but just about every goal they scored could be attributed to a poor defensive play by Crotone. The Destro goal started with a switch by Goran Pandev to Paolo Giglione. Crotone midfielder Antonio Mazzotta overcommitted on the tackle and didn't get there, which allowed Giglione to play the cross into Destro. On the Pandev goal, Lisandro Magalan didn't push up when he should have, which played Pandev onside and gave him a clear path to the goal. The finish was beautiful, but a 37-year-old should not be beating you on a clear break from midfield. Likewise, Zapacosta's finish on the third goal was beautiful as well, but that play started with another terrible piece of defending. Unfortunately, it was Magalan again who got beat by Zapacosta after a terrible attempt at a tackle, not to mention Chigarini just casually tracking back. Now, I don't have anyone on Crotone to blame for the fourth goal. I think you just have to give Piaccia credit for that perfect finish. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. With only one match played, and given the result of that match, I expect Rolando Maran to use a very similar starting 11 to what he used against Crotone, again lined up in the 3-5-2 formation. Mattia Perin will start in goal. The back three against Crotone were Christian Zapata in the middle, Eduardo Goldaniga on the right, and Davide Beraski on the left. I'm expecting the same three for this match. In the middle of the five-man midfield were Lucas Larraguer, Miha Zach, and Milan Badel. Davide Zapacosta played at left wing back and Paolo Giglione played at right wing back. Up top were Goran Pandev and Mattia Destro. Perhaps we see Marco Piaccia start over either of those two, but I think he probably replaces Pandev off the bench as he did against Crotone. For Napoli, I'm really struggling with the starting 11 and formation, so I'll walk you through where my head is at. And at the same time, what I'm going to do is incorporate quotes from an interview that David Ospina gave to Radio Kiss Kiss because he actually touched on a number of different things. So let's start with the formation. That's one of the things I'm struggling with. Does Gattuso use the same approach, which is to start the 4-3-3 and then change it if required, or does he go straight to the 4-2-3-1? On the one hand, the 4-3-3 was completely ineffective against Parma, but on the other hand, Gattuso is a fairly conservative manager. In his interview, Ospina said that Napoli are ready with both the 4-3-3 and with changing as the match progresses, so for those reasons, I think Gattuso goes back to the 4-3-3. As far as personnel goes, Ospina said it's very important to start with a win as this gives the team confidence. If this match was later in the season, I think we might have seen Gattuso rotate more. But because this is only the second match and knowing how mentally fragile we were last season, I expect Gattuso to go with the starting 11 that he thinks 
gives them the best chance to beat Genoa. One of the big debates has been who should be the number one keeper. It seems more has been made about this by the media than anything else. The two keepers appear to have an excellent relationship. Ospina commented on this as well. He said they have a very good relationship. He added that not only do they have a great friendship, but he is also there to help Meret. For this match, I think Gattuso is going to start Meret because I think he will want Ospina to start the following week against Juventus. And it's not that I think Ospina can't handle playing three straight matches, but after the Juventus match, there's an international break. So if Meret doesn't play this match, he probably goes an entire month without getting any competitive minutes. So for that reason, I expect Meret to start this one. With how well Koulibaly and Mano last played last match, I expect Gattuso to start them both again to continue to build that chemistry. Ospina commented on them as well. He said, having strong defenders up front is important. We work to keep clean sheets because we have players capable of resolving the match in front of us. At fullback, I think we will see Giovanni Di Lorenzo start at right back again. The one change to the back line I expect is Mario Rui at left back over El Hisai. In the midfield, I think Diego Demis starts at the Regista again. He only played 61 minutes against Parma, so he'll be fresh and that would give Lobotka an additional week to get back to 100% fitness. In front of Demme, I think we'll see both Fabian and Zelinski again. Part of the reason I think Gattuso uses the 4-3-3 is because he's going to want to control the midfield, which is harder to do in a 4-2-3-1. The 4-2-3-1 is more aggressive, it opens up the field, but it also exposes us a little bit. Now with Pandev and Destro up top, I'm not terribly concerned about the counter-attack, but we did see what a player like Davide Zabacosta can do if he's given the space to run into. There's a small chance that Elif Elmas starts, perhaps as a belated birthday gift from Gattuso, but I think we're more likely to see him come in off the bench if we have a comfortable lead. If we don't have the lead, then we replace a midfielder with an attacking player and switch to the 4-2-3-1 as we did against Parma. Up top, Lorenzo Insigne will play on the left. He played almost every match with the condensed schedule last season, so I don't expect him to miss too many matches. On the right wing, I think we'll see Matteo Politano get the start over Chucky Lozano. By the way, I've decided if Reno's going to call him Chucky, then so am I. I mentioned earlier that pretty much all of Crotone's quality chances came from crosses and Politano is a better crosser of the ball than Lozano, which is why I have him starting. We also saw Politano and Callejon alternate starts pretty much every match after the restart, so I think we might see a lot of that with Politano and Lozano this season. The position I'm struggling the most with is striker because I think you can make an argument not only for Mertens or Osiman, but even for Petania. Mertens has the quality and experience that you can justify starting him against any opponent, but I don't think he matches up particularly well against Christian Zapata. I also think Gattuso is going to want Mertens to start against Juventus the following match. Even though Mertens is in peak shape, he would benefit from the extra rest at his age. Osimhen and Patania both provide the size you need to win those crosses. Patania offers a bit more strength. And like I mentioned earlier, if this match was later in the year, I would expect Gattuso to rotate more and start Patania here. As we know, Osimhen provides size and pace. I've mentioned a few times that I don't think Genoa is as good as that result against Crotona suggests that they are. For strikers, it's really important to get the first goal out of the way, and I think this would be the perfect opportunity for Osimhen to do that. So I'm going to go with Osimhen to start in the 4-3-3, which is something we saw Gattuso test out in the friendlies. But I must admit, I'm not terribly confident in this. The match official for this one is Juan Lucas Saki. His linesmen are Alessandro Lochicero and Christian Rossi. The fourth official is Francesco Forno. Federico La Pena is on the VAR and his assistant is Alessandro Gialatini. For my prediction, I'm going to go with a 3-1 Napoli win. 
I'm going to give Osaman a brace and Politano the third as he looked pretty good in the friendlies as well. For Genoa, I look at this squad and it's really difficult to pick who might score in this match. I think that they may get one on a penalty kick, but with the change in the interpretation of the handball rule, there have been fewer penalties awarded. But I can totally see Mario Rui fouling Gilione in the box. Domenico Crescito was Genoa's primary shooter last season, but he's injured, so I'll give the goal to Goran Pandev. I think Napoli have a much improved mindset under Gattuso and they are going to show up for this match, which doesn't bode well for Genoa. In that interview with Radio Kiss Kiss, Ospina said that the first goal is to return to the Champions League and then to fight for the Scudetto. He said Napoli have to focus on the next match, which is against Genoa. They have good players and started well. Victories generate other victories. We must be our best this week to bring home all three points on Sunday. So even though we have Juventus next, I think we will be focused squarely on this match. I think Napoli are going to dominate possession and like Parma, Genoa are really going to struggle to create anything. Their best chances will probably come on the counter-attack, which is not terribly concerning. Zapacosta and Gilione are the most likely threats on the counter. Pandev and Destro on the counter really doesn't worry me. So that will do for part 2. In part 3, we'll do our first feature of Season 2. final part we're going to do more of a mini feature. Today I want to talk a little bit about the so-called liquidity ratio which you may or may not have heard about lately. Full disclosure I am going to use some accounting terms in this part and I do want to give my friend Mike a shout out. I go to him with all my accounting questions. Another good friend of mine Jerry Mancini sent me a tweet that inspired this feature and that tweet was from the Calcio England Twitter account where they claimed that Lazio haven't closed on Mohamed Farez because they're struggling to demonstrate that they have the financial means to get through the next 12 months. The tweet further suggests that the problem could be the liquidity ratio. Before I explain the issue here, let me take a step back and explain what the liquidity ratio is. First, the liquidity ratio is not a football term, it's an accounting term. And second, there's not one liquidity ratio, but many. Liquidity ratios are metrics used to assess an organization's ability to pay off debt in an emergency using cash or by selling assets that can be quickly converted to cash. The three most common ratios are the current ratio, the quick ratio, and the operating cash flow ratio. What we here refer to as the liquidity ratio in Serie A is really the current ratio. The current ratio is current assets divided by current liabilities. 
So bringing this back to football, the current assets, which are the assets that can be converted to cash relatively quickly, would include TV revenue for the current season, ticket sales, and player sales in the current season. For clubs that own their own stadiums, you wouldn't consider the stadium a current asset because that is not something that could be sold quickly. Also, players remaining at the club, in other words, not being sold, are non-current assets as well. So what does the current ratio have to do with Calcio? To answer that, I'll circle back to that Calcio England tweet. In that tweet, they included a copy of FIGC official communication number 27A, issued on December 18th, 2018. In this communication, FIGC introduced requirements for Serie A clubs to maintain three ratios at certain levels. The first is this liquidity ratio, which as we mentioned is really the current ratio. The second is the debt ratio, which is simply total debt over total revenue. And the third is the cost of labor ratio, which is cost of labor over revenue. That communication contained a table that summarizes the minimum requirements for each of these ratios. For each year in the three-year period of that memo, the minimum requirement becomes stricter or more difficult to achieve. For the liquidity ratio, in the 2018-19 campaign, the minimum requirement was 0.6, meaning current assets should cover 60% of your short-term debt obligations. That's fairly reasonable. In 2019-20, the minimum increased to 0.7, so again, current assets need to be able to cover 70% of short-term debt obligations. That's definitely more difficult, but for most clubs, still achievable. However, in the 2020-21 campaign, that minimum increased to 0.8, meaning current assets should cover 80% of short-term debt. Now, not only is that ratio higher, but the increase came in the middle of a pandemic, which is particularly difficult to manage for small to mid-sized clubs. These clubs rely more heavily on ticket sales than the big clubs do, so with matches being played behind closed doors, that stream has dried up. And because they tend to be less successful, they generate less in TV revenue as well. Half of the broadcasting contract is split equally amongst the clubs, but the other half is awarded based on performance. The result is that clubs like Lazio are going to have a harder time signing players. When a player is purchased, the transfer fee is amortized over the term of the contract, so the amount amortized in the current year increases the current liability, which therefore decreases the current ratio. What that means is if a small to mid-sized club is just barely achieving the minimum required current ratio, what that means is if a small to mid-sized club is just barely achieving the minimum required current ratio, they may need to sell a player first before they can purchase another one. So that is the liquidity ratio. Before I close the pod, I have one last thing I want to mention that I forgot to mention last week. We are participating in the Podcast Predictions League, which has been organized by our friends at the Far From Vesuvius podcast. Rafa had this amazing idea of doing a pool among Calcio podcasts, where each week two matches were randomly selected, and each podcast picks the outcome and the score. Correctly picking the outcome gets you one point, and correctly picking the score gets you three points, and the podcast with the most points at the end of the season wins the pool. It's a great way to unite the cultural Twitter community. It's loads of fun, and you don't need to have a podcast to enjoy it. You can track everyone's picks and the scoreboard on the Far From Vesuvius Twitter page. I'll quickly list off the participants. We have 15 in total, which is a pretty good showing for the first time. Obviously, there's Far From Vesuvius, there's Stereo Serie A, Serie A Sit Down, the Italian Football Podcast, the Calcio Guys, Six Side Calcio, Milan Weekly Podcast, Fili del Vesuvio Podcast, Scudetto Podcast, the Laziali Inter Worldwide, the Calcio Connection Podcast, 
Greta this way, Partenope Nation, and of course, Forza Napoli. We lucked out in our first week. The two matches that were drawn were Roma-Verona and Genoa-Crotone. We took Roma and Genoa to win, which would have earned us only one point, but because Roma forfeited that match, it's been scrapped in the pool and replaced by Atalanta-Lazio. This week, we took Inter to beat Fiorentina 2-1 and Sassuolo 3-0, so definitely check that out. It's going to be a ton of fun. So that will do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends, and please, if you don't mind, giving us a 5-star review on your favorite podcast platform. If you need to get a hold of us, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. We'll be back next week to review Napoli Genoa. Hopefully it's a win, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre! It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.